Welcome to Leverage Masters, airing weekly on Tuesdays at 12 Eastern and on demand on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Leverage Masters hosts Jack Humphrey and Gina Gaudio-Graves discuss leverage strategy with guest leveragists. Be sure to subscribe to Leverage Masters in your favorite podcatcher for great tips and case studies on using leverage to achieve your biggest goals much faster. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Leverage Masters. I am your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Graves, and along with my co-host and uh, co-partner, or partner and all-around co-founder in the Leverages.com and Divizio.com, Jack Humphrey will be here in just a few minutes. We have got a fantastic show lined up for you guys today. Our guest today is none other than Daniel Burris. Daniel is considered one of the world's leading technology forecasters and innovation experts. He is the CEO of Burris Research, a research and consulting firm that monitors global advances in technology-driven trends to help clients profit from technological, social, and business forces that are converging to create enormous untapped opportunities. He is a strategic advisor to executives, helping him to develop game-changing strategies based on his proven methodologies for capitalizing on technology innovations. He is the author of seven books, including the New York Times bestseller, Flash Foresight, and his latest book, The Anticipatory Organization. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, it's my pleasure to be with you. Jack likes us to ask this question of all of our guests, and that is, what gets you up in the morning these days with a fire burning in your belly, ready to start the day? Well, I think uh, what I'm really trying to do is to get all of us to not just react and respond to disruption and change, but to learn to anticipate it. And I'm very excited about this because I think we all know that uh, change is accelerating at an exponential level. And if all we do is solve problems after they happen or react to disruptions after they disrupt, uh, with change accelerating, we're not going to be happy campers on the planet and much less good entrepreneurs. So I'm very excited, and I get up uh, ready to go to help people, uh, as we're doing on this show, to learn to anticipate problems and pre-solve them before they happen and anticipate disruptions before they disrupt so that you have a choice to be the disruptor or the disrupted. You do have a choice. Well, help our listeners to better understand what that means. How do you anticipate disruption? Well, that's a great question. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, setting up uh, my background, I've uh, written seven books. I'm happy to say they've been uh, bestsellers. And globally, as well as written thousands of articles since over the last 35 years. And what I've shown is that you cannot predict everything, but it's amazing how much you can accurately predict. Let me give you some simple examples, and then we'll get a little bit more complex to show the power of it. First of all, there is That'd cycles. That would be great. Just, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there are cycles. There are weather cycles, business cycles, biological cycles. There's even sales cycles. By the way, if uh, there's a sales cycle, I like to have the sale completed before the cycle begins. In other words, you can use a cycle to your advantage. Um, so when the stock market goes up, up, up like it's been, does that mean it'll go up forever? 
No, it's cyclical. It will go down. And by the way, it won't go down forever. It'll go back up again. And after uh, summer, we know will come fall. And we know when the next election will be. And we know when the next full moon will be. There's over 500 known cycles. And economists use cyclical change to predict the future. Now, here's the important part for our listeners. And that is that, uh, as we all know, the economists have been increasingly wrong lately. And why is that? Because there's another kind of change that I want to teach our listeners today. And this kind of change is predictable and is changing our world on us. It's not cyclical. It's not one way. In other words, it will repeat over and over again. This is one way and going at an exponential rate. Uh, In other words, once you get a smartphone, you're not going back to a dumb phone. Once the people in India get refrigeration for their home, they're not going to say, hey, we don't need refrigeration. And once the people in China park their bicycle and get a car, they're not going to say we're going back to the bike. These are one-way, linear, driven by exponential technology changes that give us predictable opportunities as well as problems. And, uh, and we can see much from that. Uh, obviously, the core of all of this uh, I'll share, and that is uh, there are two types of trends because there's no shortage of trends. Look at what time of year it is, January. Everybody's publishing trends. The problem is which ones are going to happen and which ones won't. And what I've done is I've come up with a methodology of separating the hard trends that will happen from the soft trends that might happen. When you know what will happen with certainty, you can innovate with low risk. Hi, Daniel. Jack Humphrey here. Sorry, I had technical difficulties. I had a little little hard time getting on here today. Sorry about that. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm I like what you're saying. I, I see I see something in your material called hard trend, and I'm kind of wanting you to describe what you mean that, about that, and that they're based on future facts. Can you give us kind of a definition of what you mean by that, and also some examples? Absolutely, and thank you for the opportunity on that, Jack. It's really important because, you know, we live in a world of uncertainty. And personal strategy, as well as business strategy based on uncertainty, has high risk. But strategy based on certainty has low risk and high reward. So what hard trends do, again, is they're based on future facts. They will happen. They cannot be stopped, even if you're Google or Apple and have all the money in the world. The good news is you can see them ahead of time versus soft trends, which I also want to talk about. And soft trends are the things that are based on assumptions about the future. Unfortunately, we think those might be future facts, but they're assumptions. Let me give you an example uh, of both because, frankly, I love both. Why do I like a soft trend? If you don't like it, you can change it. Why do I like a hard trend? Um, you can see it coming and uh, and turn it into an advantage. So I was just speaking at a big healthcare conference. I was the keynote speaker. There were a couple of thousand CEOs from hospitals and drug companies there, and they were looking at the United States and healthcare. And as we all know, there's a trend that's been going on for a long time of increasing costs of healthcare. And all of them were trying to figure out, so how are we going to pay for this mess as we look to the future? And they were assuming that was an unstoppable future fact. However, it's not. 
You see, if we think something can't be stopped, we don't try. That's why why mm-hmm. health care reform so far has been focused around, it's really been payment reform. In other words, how do we pay for the mess of those aging baby boomers as they get older? The reality is we could lower the cost of health care. That's a soft trend, and we could use some hard trends to do it. I'll give you some technology hard trends. For example, we could use a technology uh, like virtualization and the cloud to transform, not just change, but transform logistics, purchasing and logistics between hospitals. Frankly, you could lower billions of dollars a year. You could flush out of the system by doing that. Or you could take blockchain which is a hard trend, getting more powerful over time. This is not Bitcoin. This is the underlying technology. And what blockchain does is it, it uh, allows you to have increasing security and transparency, which gives you increasing trust. Let's face it, if you uh, go into a hospital right now and you need an aspirin, you don't know that aspirin costs 30 bucks because it's not transparent. You don't know the knee surgery that you have cost twice as much where you're going versus another place. So in other words, when we start getting transparency, all of a sudden we have better competition, lower costs. You know what? Healthcare costs go down. So with hard trends, there are three categories. There is technology-based hard trends. There are demographic-based hard trends. And believe it or not, there are regulatory hard trends. So there's only three categories. It's not that difficult. And I mentioned a couple of technology hard trends. For example, are we putting more in the cloud or is the cloud getting full? Of course, you know, Jack, hey, we're going to be putting more in the cloud. That's a hard trend. And will our Mm -hmm. devices, our mobile devices, will they become more powerful as they continue to get smaller? And the answer is, well, of course. Matter of fact, right now, our mobile devices are tapping into supercomputers in the cloud. And by the way, will they get more powerful every year? And you know the answer is, well, absolutely. We're certain about that. That's growing at an exponential rate. So there's technology hard trends, thousands of them, that are absolute guarantees. And then there are demographic hard trends. For example, as I mentioned, in this country, we've got 78 million baby boomers. Hard trend. They're going to get older. They're not going to get younger. We know they're getting older for sure. And that gives us both predictable problems we could pre-solve or wait until we have them, as well as predictable opportunities. Uh, let me give you one quick one, and I'll let you jump in with a question, because I've been talking quite a bit okay. here. Uh, and no, that is, is awesome. um, All right, so let's talk about the, te- uh, the demographic card trend. I mentioned 78 million baby boomers, and I know this show is really uh, with for entrepreneurs and business people and And uh, so let's just think for a second about a product that doesn't exist. We know the baby boomers are getting older. We also know they have parents that are already getting really old. So how about we come out with a smartwatch for seniors? There isn't one right now. Let's say we do. How about one of us start this business? Um, And by the way, what is this smartwatch for? Well, it's for seniors that are 75 years and older. And you're saying, well, they're not going to buy a smartwatch. And the answer is, no, they're not. You're going to buy it for them. And why would you do that? Because, uh, first of all, all of the smartwatches today, much less in the future, have a little chip in it called an accelerometer. By the way, your smartphone does as well. And it detects motion. So if 90-year-old grandma's watch rapidly moves four feet, what happened to grandma? Well, she fell. 
And who needs to know that? Well, you do if it's your grandma. And uh, let's say grandpa is getting forgetful, not Alzheimer's, but getting forgetful and takes walks but gets lost, can't remember how to get home. What does grandpa do? Well, he just asks his watch, hey, how do I get home? And his watch tells him. He doesn't have to look at a chart. It will tell him, hey, walk up a block, turn right. And we can, as you know, of course, you can detect many things, heart rate and other things, uh, but there's a new sensor that will give you blood oxygen level. Uh, By the way, that would be very handy. My point is, you're getting the idea. Will there be a smartwatch for seniors? And the answer is yes. The only thing we don't know is who's going to put it out there. You see, here's the strategy. Here's the insight. If it can be done, it will be done. If you don't do it, someone else will. Well, how would you like to know what could be done? Looking at hard trends can help you do that. I'll give you one last one because these are three categories. I mentioned regulations, government regulations. And you might think, whoa, that's a hard trend. And the answer is, oh, yeah. You see, you can't predict all regulations. So I don't look at what I can't predict. You know, I, I'm not certain about that. I have no business power over that. Uncertainty doesn't give me confidence to make bold moves. So I like to look at what can I predict. And our current administration doesn't even like regulations. So let me just say, will we have more regulations around cybersecurity? The answer is yes. Of course we will. Why? Because there's some hard trends at play that even if you don't like regulation, you're going to have to deal with. For example, we could make uh, anybody listening to this could make a drone the size of a 747 right now. Uh, And by the way, if it can't be done, it will be done unless somebody says, wait a minute, we better have some laws here that kind of corral this in just a little bit. So there are hard trends. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So there are some hard trends at play here that uh, lets you look at the future of regulations. Let me talk about how, uh, one last example on regulations so we make this real for everyone. Let's talk about California. Uh, a year ago, there were a little over a 1,000 laws that uh, went into play in January in California. By the way, a similar number half is happening this year because California is a big state. One of those laws said within three years, it's a real California law, Every kindergartner and first grader in the state who goes to public school, within three years, half of their reading material has to be nonfiction. Now, right now, by the way, it's all fiction. The little engine that could is fiction. But you got three years to make half of it nonfiction. And when we hear things like that, we start getting all upset and thinking, why are they doing that? Don't they have something more important to do? But there was a 27-year-old teacher in San Diego that had read my anticipatory organization book and did something different. She did the opposite of looking at what she doesn't like and looked at what she does like, knowing it's a law. She made three phone calls. She called the San Diego School District, the Los Angeles School District, and the San Francisco School District, very large ones. And she said, you got three years to get nonfiction books, half the reading, nonfiction for kindergartners and first graders. If I provided those books, would you be interested and they said, well, yeah, we didn't know how we are going to do that. To make a long story short, they underwrote her company. They became guaranteed customers, and she didn't have to go on Shark Tank. My point is she was using hard trends to jump ahead and innovate with low risk. So three categories, technology, demographics, 
and regulation, all of them give you a window to the future that you can use to transform your business and to accelerate growth. So I know a little about or something about all three of those, but where my heart really lies, and a lot of the listeners here, because we depend so much on it, is technology. And what I'm interested in is like, okay, let's take this view that you're giving us and really just uh, kind of divvy up what we know in our businesses about the future, what we know and what is soft, and kind of practice in this hard and soft trend world a little bit. So I'm looking at Elon Musk. I'm looking at Tesla, SpaceX, and uh, the solar stuff, and I'm looking at, well, okay, what do I know about him? I'm kind of a fan, so I know a lot of about him. But now look at it as, what has he done that's turned something into a hard trend? And you can correct me if I've got this wrong. But what I think is there's some things that you will never be able to go back to. Like you said earlier, you won't go back to buying a car the same way. Everybody hates buying cars the way that cars are typically sold. Nobody in the world loves going to buy a car because they make it so freaking painful. It's awful. And then Musk just opens an Apple-like store, and you can just order your car, and the salesmen are not commissioned, and bing, bang, everybody has to start doing that now because people are going to just want to start buying cars that way. And is that a hard – did he turn that – by that decision, that innovation, did he turn that into a hard trend? Well, yes. Let's First of all, I want to adjust a little something that you said you don't – turn something into a hard trend, what you do is you recognize a hard trend and turn it into an opportunity. So what uh, Musk did is he actually looked at something Dell, Dell computers did long ago. If you remember back when Dell got started, what they said is you don't have to go to a store to buy a computer. What you can do is Mm -hmm. go online, configure it the way you want it, give us your credit card, and we'll ship it to you. Well, that's exactly what Tesla is doing. They're doing the Dell model. So this is something that existed before. And, by the way, this is a really good analogy. And uh, so what what he did was he said, that's never been done with cars. So then he asked, will it? And the answer is, go back to my principle. If it can be done, it will be done. If you don't do it, someone else will. So he did. Now, will that mean that all cars will be sold online? And the answer is no. Because you brought up the subject of retail, and let's take a second of talking about retail and uh, and talk about hard trends and soft trends, because I know a lot of us are wondering, what is the future of retail? Um, Like you said, the customer experience of buying a car in the normal way is terrible. Well, could that be changed, or is is it unchangeable? Is it destiny that every time you go in to buy a car, it will be horrible unless you buy it online? The answer is, well, no, not at all. You could change that. You could actually have an amazing customer experience, just like going to a bank. Frankly, it's boring. That's why nobody goes to banks. But I worked with a company uh, up in uh, Canada, a banking uh, organization, <clears throat> the Dutch Royal Bank. They turned their banking outlets into Apple-like stores. Well, the parking lots are full. Why? They redefined the customer experience, just as Apple did when they created their first uh, Apple store. So what I'm getting at is uh, redefining the customer experience can be done to attract customers to retail. Let's just uh, take a look at uh, 
a concept I share in the book, the anticipatory organization and how this plays out. And then we'll tie it back to Musk. And that is future view. I've been sharing the concept uh, and the principle of future view for over 30 years. So here's the principle. How you, how your children, how your employees, how we all view the future, to a great extent, shapes how we act in the present. Uh, For example, right now, there are people that are buying Bitcoin. By the way, there's people that are selling Bitcoin. And there are other people who would never get Bitcoin. By the way, they all have a different future view of Bitcoin. Right now, there are people that are thinking of starting a company. There are other people that would never think of starting a company. Why? They got a different view of being an entrepreneur. Their future view is different. So how you view the future shapes how you act, and how you act actually shapes your future. Your future view will determine the future year, you. So now let's take a look at if you are a CEO of a large retail chain and you think the good old days of retail are behind you, that's your future view. You might close 174 stores. By the way, Sears is doing that right now because their future view of retail is it's terrible. On the other hand, if your future view of retail is, wow, the good old days were ahead of us, they just don't like, don't look like the days behind us. You might buy Whole Foods, as Amazon did. You might open up over 100 brick-and-mortar bookstores, as Amazon is doing. In other words, both of those CEOs see a different future for retail, and both of those companies will play out the reality of what happens to them and all their employees. So my question is, most of us are looking at the future as if we were driving a car looking at our rearview mirror. We're looking at the future, Mm -hmm. but actually we're using our past mindset and our current mindset. But, uh, Jack, an important thing for our listeners is we're no longer in a period of change. We're now living in a period of technology-driven transformation that's growing exponentially. We can do things today that was impossible two years ago. So using our past uh, perspective to determine what we're doing going forward is actually can get you into trouble. That's where a lot of assumptions come in. And, you know, I mentioned soft trends being powerful and that you can change them, and soft trends are based on assumptions. Let me give our listeners one more little insight here, and that is, There's two types of assumptions about the future. Um, Remember, they're not facts. They're assumptions. One of the is that to make it easy, I call them hard assumptions and soft assumptions, kind of like hard trends and soft trends. A hard assumption, Mm -hmm. you've done your homework. You've done research on it. It's not a future fact, but it's highly likely. If if it is an assumption based on your, if you didn't do the research, now you've got a high-risk assumption because it may not happen at all. You just think it will. So I think we need to evaluate our assumptions as well as take a look at our future facts. You know what I love about doing this show is there are times when I don't know, and even if I think I know, it usually isn't what happens. Uh, but there are times where I don't know what the most pertinent thing, what the most outstanding thing is going to be on the show that the guest brings to the show. And uh, and it's just now dawning on me as you're talking what those things are going to be likely for the rest of this show and certainly have been thus far. And I love that that you're here because 
a lot of people are aware at times, they'll go to conferences, they'll see a speaker, they'll load their notebook down with all the things they ought to do as they go home and, uh, and apply the things they've learned in their business. But they don't, they don't consider themselves futurists. They consider themselves owners of the business that they went to a conference and got some training uh, <laughs> and they're bringing home to their business and they put their business hat right back on. But it really seems like it would, we'd all do well to think of ourselves a little bit more like I feel like you probably think about when you get out of bed every day, who you are, what you think about. And I know that's a huge assumption to make, but, I mean, I just see the word futurist on, on, on your site and on your book and everything, and I'm like, we could all use a better dose of that. I certainly know I could to really start looking at the world the way that you do, which I'm sure is why you're writing your books and you do all the work that you've been doing for all this time. But um, we don't typically, we, we really hit things on the nose around here. You know, somebody will come in and be an expert in a certain area, but the ramifications of having someone like you talk about these things on this show today are far reaching. And it's really exciting to talk about. I just had to put that note in there because it's funny. You just never know what the cool stuff is going to be or how it's really going to apply. And, uh, and this is exciting stuff. I mean, you live in well, a, kind of an exciting world. We live in an amazingly exciting world, and uh, and I think that um, there the two most important uh, times in a person's life is the day you're born and the day you find out why you were born. In other words, you kind of just see your purpose. And I was very lucky, Jack, uh, and to our listeners, uh, long ago I realized why I was put on the planet, and that is to teach. And I think you know uh, some of the background you didn't share is that I started out teaching biology and physics. I got a, uh, a, a Educator of the Year Award my first year, so I'm a good teacher. But I've also started uh, six companies. And out of those companies, five were profitable in the first year, and four of them were national leaders in the United States in the first year. So I don't just teach. I also do. And because I'm a teacher, I don't tell. I teach, which means... I get my passion in empowering people. Having me on your show is important to me because I'm not here to sell a book. What I'm really here to do is empower our listeners, as you are. That's why you have this show. As a matter of fact, uh, Jack and Gina, let me just, uh, now is a good point. I'm going to do something for your listeners right now because uh, you've had me on this show, and I'm, a, as a teacher, as I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give everyone listening to this show a free, get this, hardcover copy of my book. It's already been number one on Amazon's Hot New Books. It just came out. Uh, already companies are using it. It's already got some awards, as a matter of fact. So I'm going to give you a hardcover copy. You will have to pay a couple of bucks for shipping. It'll come FedEx to you in, uh, within three or four days. All you have to do is go do the title of the book is The anticipatory organization so if you go to the t-h-e-a-o-book.com you can get get a free copy I, you know again you're gonna have to pay for shipping uh, and i'm not making money on the shipping i really just want to get you the book and of course i'm doing that because i know our listeners are going to love this book recommended to a friend they're probably going to go to amazon and buy it i'll end up doing fine so there you go there's no barrier anymore awesome. I'm giving thank it to you, you so much we love guests who bear gifts, and uh, that is one <laughs> awesome gift. So theaobook.com, for everybody who didn't catch it before, go check that out. And, Daniel, thank you so much for that. 
Uh, and the gifts can still keep on coming, guys. We're not even halfway through here. So where do we go from here, though? Because uh, I have so many questions for you. you. You overwhelm an interviewer with all of the things I could ask you. Um, now, you know that let our audience give, is... Let me is, give an action. And Jack, let me okay. let me give our listeners an action. And by the way, I'm going to give you an action here, too. Um, I might give this at the end of the show, but I think right now I'm going to give it right now. And that is um, because you talked about I'm a futurist, maybe we should all think about being a futurist. And I'm here to say, well, yeah, you're going to spend the rest of your life in the future. Maybe you ought to think about it. And most of us, our view of the future is actually not even close to how exciting it really is. And the reason is, of course, we listen to the news. And bad news sells, good news doesn't sell. And if there's no bad news, they give you the anniversary of bad news. But the reality Mm -hmm. is there is a very steep mountain of opportunity right in front of you. It just happens to be fogged in by the news. So what I'd suggest that all of us do is spend one hour a week. By the way, one hour is doable. You can carve out an hour. And in this hour... By the way, a little coaching on this for everyone. Put it in your calendar and make it an appointment. It's kind of like exercise. If you say, I'm going to exercise this week and you don't have a time to do it, it probably won't happen. So make an appointment Mm -hmm. with yourself. And in this case, unplug from the present. Unplug from all the problems and all the stuff you're dealing with today uh, because that's management. I instead want you to be an opportunity manager and plug into your future. And in that hour... I'd like you to ask yourself, instead of here's all the things I am uncertain about, one of the principles I teach is do the opposite. Ask yourself, what are all the things I'm absolutely certain about? What are the hard trends that I can see up ahead that are shaping the future? And by the way, when you see a trend from now on, never have it sit by itself. Always link it to an opportunity. Because, frankly, who cares about trends? But when you take a trend and tie it to an opportunity, it bursts into life for you because it's an opportunity for you. So make a list of those hard trends that are shaping the future that you can see in that hour, the things that you can see coming. And you'll start to see amazing things, including disruptions that are coming, disruptions to your career, to your business. And you know what? If you can see that ahead of time, you can take action so that it is positive rather than negative. As a matter of fact, you'll decide probably to be the disruptor. Better that you disrupt your career than someone else. Better that you be the disruptor of your business rather than letting someone else do it for you because that gives you control. And uh, in that hour, you also want to ask, and what are the problems I can see that I'm going to have? I mean, everybody listening to this show has said at one time or another, I knew that was going to happen. And I would say, so why did you let it? Hey, if you, if, don't you want to pre-solve predictable problems before <laughs> they happen? You know, so take that hour, become an opportunity manager, learn how to, I'm giving you a book, a hardcover book for free, and I know you're going to really like it. So take it to read through the book. It's a fast read. You can get it on audio. You can go and buy it on Amazon if you want. I don't care. Uh, but I'm going to give you a copy. Use that and then spend that hour a week. And you know what I want you to do? Pick something. Pick one thing. Big list never get done. That is doable. 
You can now see this is going to happen. Here's the opportunity for me and make it happen. Because wait and see mindset is not where you want to be in a world of transformational change. I want you to shape your future. And frankly, I'm excited not about predicting the future. I'm excited about getting all of you to actively shape a better tomorrow for yourselves, for your family, for your business, for your employees, for your customers, because hope is not a strategy. Sitting back and hoping it'll be better isn't good enough. You need to actively shape it. And if I can get a lot of people actively shaping a positive tomorrow, you know what? We're going to have a positive tomorrow. If we sit back and hope, I'm a little worried about our future. Wow. So barely after the halfway mark, we've gotten more gifts. I'll tell you this. Uh, Friday from 10 to 11, and I'm just going to keep that going on my calendar, is uh, my plug in the future hour. So, And it's already written down. I already got my notes, and I'll recap them very quickly. What am I certain about? What are the hard trends I'm certain about that are shaping, shaping the future? Uh, tie it into an opportunity. What are the problems I can see that I'm going to have? Pick one thing that's doable and make it happen. Did I get it? I love it. I love it. You know, that's, that is, uh, you'll find that hour to be amazingly powerful. And remember, make it happen, people that are listening to this, because uh, we can get sidetracked by busy work. As a matter of fact, in the book, I talk about um, the biggest worry I have for all of us is that we're all really busy. And, uh, you know, you got to ask yourself, why didn't a cab driver think of the idea of Uber? Or why didn't Marriott think of the idea of Airbnb? Those are multi-billion dollar ideas. Why didn't they think that? And the reason is they were too busy doing what they always do. It took someone from the outside to look at the hard trend opportunities and say, you know what, this is going to happen. And if I don't do it, someone else will. Maybe I should just go ahead and do it. So you can busy yourselves today right out of business. That's why you need to spend some time being an opportunity manager. And frankly, I want to turn you and everyone else into what I would call a visible futurist. The word visible means much of the future is there to see when you learn it's invisible to you until you learn to work with the hard and soft trends. Then all of a sudden it starts becoming visible. And, you know, for those of, of us that have uh, read some of my other books, for example, one of my older books was called Technotrends. And Technotrends was published in 1993. Uh, and in that book, if you go back and look at that, you can see one of the things I said in that book is blockbuster is busted. That was a headline. And underneath it, I described what we call today streaming and Netflix. Now, of course, I couldn't say the company would be called Netflix you can't predict what they're going to call a company, but you can definitely predict what will happen with it. And in that book, I talked about smartphones and when they would be coming out. I even put time frames on it that were accurate. I talked about social media. Take a look. It's amazing. So I've been able to, in my books going all the way back to the early 80s, I've been very accurate in predicting the future, and that is because I leave out the parts I can be wrong about. The key is how much you and I can be right when you learn how to separate the hard and soft trends. And again, a hard trend gives you the confidence to make a bold move. See, right now, most of us don't have confidence to make a bold move because there's so much uncertainty. But a hard trend gives you certainty 
and certainty gives you confidence. And then you start realizing not doing it is actually a greater risk than doing it. So you move forward. Yeah. This is wonderful because, again, I don't want to be a dead horse or anything. I think we could look at this in a really fun way because there was a problem back in the in the uh, 50s or so where you, you see all these old black and white or newly colored uh, 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 commercials for the future. And we got some things really wrong back then. <laughs> like, but I don't, think, I don't think people blame that on the right thing. I mean, I think some companies were really idealistic back then about certain things and what would be happening today. Now, a lot of those things did come true in a way or in a fashion well, some of them just didn't. I mean, I just remember seeing a video not too long ago on YouTube about the modern kitchen, and they literally crammed every little gadget they possibly could, like an automatic dog feeder, and we've had those today, uh, and, and watering things and all of this stuff, uh, but a lot of the things were not practical. You would look at it and look in hindsight and go, they should have known that wasn't practical on the surface right then and there but they were making all kinds of stabs at what the future was going to be. And they got, we got a lot of stuff right, you know, and then sci-fi guys got even more right. Gene Roddenberry did miracles for us to even give our technology smart people the idea of uh, having little handheld devices that can communicate without a cord attached to a wall. And, (laughs) you know, but what happens when people get things wrong or what if you misread something is any of this a good fodder for you to give us an example of what to be careful for, how to, how to maybe not mistake a hard trend when it's really not, or, um, you know, kind of being well, careful that, as a futurist. That's the, that's the beauty of what I'm teaching everyone listening today and in my books is that the reason that they had some things right and some things wrong is they didn't understand there's a difference between a hard trend and a soft trend, a future fact and an assumption. Uh, so what they did, yeah. and, you know, and if they would have known the difference, it would have made all the difference because they could have said these things will happen and these things might happen, and they would have, they would have been able to nail it. So let's see, even today, and you, let's tie this back to Musk and what he's doing, um, because you mentioned that. Let's just talk about that. Mm-hmm. So uh, many of us may not realize this, but uh, how did Musk, in all of the businesses he started, and he's done amazing things, as we all know, um, he was playing the hard trends right off the bat. Uh, For example, every one of his companies that he started right from the beginning, uh, he used government regulations to fund his businesses. Now, most of us don't realize that. Well, yeah, go back and take a look. For example, uh, let's just take SpaceX. When uh, NASA said they're closing down the space shuttle and they're not going to have any more space shuttles and we're no longer going to be uh, doing all that space work, we're going to job it out. And they started laying off thousands of NASA scientists and engineers. Somebody. But they also said, we're going to pay someone else to do all of this, and hopefully it's not just the Russians. So what Musk did Mm -hmm. is he realized, wow, NASA and the government have money to put satellites up there. They're just not going to use a shuttle. They're not going to do it anymore. They're going to job it out. Who are they going to job it out to? So what did he do? He he basically hired all those NASA guys that are now unemployed, 
and used the money from NASA, because NASA doesn't want to build things anymore, and said, you know what, we'll build it. By the way, solar, solar city. Well, the government's underwriting solar, so he's doing that as well. Um, I've, I've had a Tesla for uh, a couple of years now, love the thing, and frankly, there's, uh, there's a lot of underwriting going on. Everything he's doing, he's using the hard trend of government regulation. Secondly, he's using the hard trend of technology. Because we can do things today that we couldn't do two, three, four years ago. So he can mm-hmm. see if it can be done, it will be done. If I don't do it, someone else will. And he's moving in and creating that new future. So, uh, and frankly, now because of his bold moves, but remember, it was bold moves with lower risk because, again, he knew if he didn't do it, others would. I mean, let's face it, China for the last 15 years has been choking on their own air in Beijing and other places. And at some point when your people are going to be dying, if you don't do something different, by the way, that's crisis management. They could have seen this coming and pre-solved it, but they didn't. Instead, now, what are they doing? Well, they're becoming green. They're they're going electric all the way. Why? Because if they don't, other people are going to die. So, you know, there's – so in other words – China's going to be making electric cars. This is looking back 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And if we don't do it, they will. So maybe we should do it. And by the way, maybe we should do it for here, too. And we could actually make this happen. So he is. He's driving that. Now, let's talk about is he infallible? Will he make mistakes? And the answer is yes. I'm going to give you a mistake that he made recently because I know you're a fan of his. And by the way, I'm too. But he does make mistakes. Here's a mistake that he made because, frankly, he hadn't read my latest book yet and made this mistake. Here's what he said. Maybe you remember reading about this. He said, by the year 2025, no car will be sold with a steering wheel. Now, stick around. You'll see he'll be wrong. He'll be wrong because he didn't know about the hard trend, soft trend methodology that I'm teaching you today. Here's why he'll be wrong. Can you imagine Lamborghini or Porsche selling a car without a steering wheel? What are they going to say? Nope. Hey, it's got nice seats. Forget it. You know what? I <laughs> like to drive. As a matter of fact, I, I like I said, I've had a Tesla Model X uh, for quite a while. Love that car. It can drive itself on the highway real well. You know what? I don't do that very often. I love driving it. Heck, it's faster than Lamborghini. I love that thing. So I like to drive it, but there are times when I want it to drive. So... Um, and and also, can you, Jack, imagine yourself zipping along at 80 miles an hour on a freeway with no steering wheel and no way to take over control of the car if something goes wrong? I don't think so. So in other words... They even have steering of, wheels in spaceships. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. So my, my point is, uh, instead of saying they'll all be driverless, where, what I would say is you've got to bring in one of the principles I teach in the book, which is the both-and principle versus the either-or. Either-or principle, which most of us default to, is either it'll be all driver or all driverless. But the both-and principle says, no, it's both. So a better question to ask is, where is the best place to put fully autonomous vehicles versus where is the best place to have Partially autonomous. And partially autonomous, by the way, means we've eliminated the accident part. We didn't eliminate the driving part. You can drive if you want to. We just 
have made it so you can't have an accident with that car. So it's uh, both and. Matter of fact, if you go back to my history in the late 80s when CD-ROMs first came out, most of the futurists were saying, hey, we're going to be paperless in the next five years. There's not going to be any books published. This was in 1989 people were saying that. But if you look at my <laughs> articles and all the things I wrote, I didn't do that. What I said is, you know what? We're going to have more paper and we're going to have more digital. We're going to have both. And I predicted how we would use CD-ROMs accurately by asking the question I want all of our listeners to ask. Here's another big one on how to be right about the future. And that is, what's the ideal use for CD-ROMs? Remember, this is back in 89. And it's not reading Moby Dick or something like that. In my mind, it was, how about encyclopedias? How about dictionaries? How about reference materials? Uh, you know, not gonna, you don't read those. You want to access them. By the way, I predicted that. I was right. That's how we used CD-ROMs in the beginning. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so if I look into the future, are we completely and totally paperless? No. Paper serves a function. There's a lot of more information to share. The key is what is best displayed digitally versus what is best displayed on paper. See, you have to ask better questions to get better answers. All of this that I've been talking about is covered in my book, and it shows you how. And one of the things I love about uh, people that have read my books, again, this is book number seven for me, is I have a lot of stories to illustrate the exact, I give you really good examples so you understand the concepts, and they're all doable. They're all very doable by anyone because uh, this isn't that hard. It's kind of like when I, I'm a strategic advisor to the uh, CIO of the uh, uh uh, Pentagon and the Department of Defense and the Joint Chiefs. And when I go in, first got in and started working with uh, the Joint Chiefs and the uh, head of cybersecurity for the U.S., one of their comments was, wow, this isn't that hard. I just wish we would have thought of it. And mm. that to me is a great, and that is intentional on my part. You see, if you make things hard, people can't do it. But if you take hard things and make them doable, in other words, you would have never thought of it, but it makes so much sense. You can't help but do it. That's, I think, my gift and that I'm sharing with all the people that I, that I touch is I can take complexity and all this difficult stuff and empower you with a way that helps you personally and professionally to navigate the future. See, this is what, this is what, I so have to fight going on a tangent because to be a fly on the wall and ask you what those guys are typically interested in without giving away state secrets, I can't ask you that question, but I'm dying to. So we've got to have you on the show again <laughs> because, yeah. wow, that, that, the, that kind of stuff. I mean, when people look at you, and I like how, really, frankly, humble you are about it because uh, people like that would probably tend to treat you, oh, here comes the guy who knows what's going on, and you're sitting there going, this giant government agency with all the resources and power and everything at its fingertips needs me, and they're looking to me. And <laughs> how that doesn't go to your head, I have no idea. But you also bring it right down to a very, very simple level so that everybody can take part in this. And some people's shtick is to uh, – not saying that you have one. You have no shtick that I can detect. But some people are like, well, I've got to make this hard because then they won't see me as the expert if I teach them how to do it. And a lot of business models and coaching, consulting, things like that are like that, 
where things have been actually made more mysterious and complicated than they actually are so that there's value in the market for the person who's doing all the rescuing and saving people in whatever way that they do it. But I really feel like I could read this book, and and I'm glad I asked the question earlier, how do we know we're making the right decisions? And it sounds like you've dedicated an awful lot, where some people might not, uh, to how to make much, much more solid decisions and not just left us all with more of the fluff, which is, you know, the hard, soft trends, all that kind of stuff, and then not explaining that. That's really generous of you. I thank you for that. And also really awesome because I do feel a little bit empowered here uh, that I don't always have to go to you guys and find out, you know, (laughs) in your busy schedule and schedule something in. I can think for myself a little bit more like a futurist, and that, that feels empowering to me. Well, that's that's exactly what why, you asked me long ago in this interview, what gets me excited when I wake up. And what you just said is why I get excited when I wake up. I want to truly show you what I do. I mean, you know, I was given uh, I was given some gifts. I'm very grateful for that. And I think when you're given a gift, it's not a good thing to not use it. The opposite. I think when you're given a gift, the key is to use it to empower people and to share and to, again, I'm, I'm put on the planet to teach. So I, uh, like when I wrote my last book, Flash Foresight, uh, which is, uh, came out in, uh, at the end of 2011, and I'm happy to say it was the New York Times Wall Street Journal bestseller. When that book came out, and the subtitle, by the way, tells you what that book was about, the book was, subtitle was How to See the Invisible and Do the Impossible. And Really, my clients have been, that's what my clients have said I do for them. I help them see invisible opportunities and solve impossible problems. So when I do that for clients, for governments, for, you know, big, you know, the Googles and the IBMs and things like that, um, I, what comes to me is, what am I doing? I have to ask myself that. How am I doing that? Uh, I might solve a, what they think is an impossible problem in a minute. And instead of, gee, I'm smart, what I like to do instead is ask myself, what am, I, what am I doing? Let me slow that process down so that to see if there's a way I can teach others to do it. Um, hey, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. I don't want to be the only guy that can do this. I want everyone to be able to do this. Uh, so uh, really, I try to come up with how am I doing what I'm doing so that I can teach you all to do it. Um, and... When I go in to meet with, because uh, I've met with presidents and I've met with, I've uh, worked with in Singapore, by the way, is the first government to create an e-government, which means putting government services in the cloud to better serve their people. Uh, and I got involved in that project with a company called Singtel and a few others, which and Singtel is similar to AT&T here in the U.S. Anyway, um, you know, when I've been doing things like that, I realized you know, we're all just humans on this planet, and we have strengths and we have weaknesses. And uh, there's, it's not about being better than or smarter than. Those are foolish ways to think about it, um, in my mind. It's better to think to yourself, uh, what can I do to help elevate your thinking and accelerate your results? What can I do to help you do things that you might seem might be impossible to you? And if I have some tools for that, it's exciting. So I know we're uh, we're coming up on our time, and I just want to uh, again remind people that 
uh, your uh, your future is different than your past. You see, you can't change the past. You can learn from it, and I like learning from it. I don't want to repeat mistakes. That's why when my last book was called Flash Foresight, there's a reason I did not call it Flash Hindsight. Frankly, <laughs> I got that down. I got that down. Yeah. But um, I, I you don't can't need to read change that book. your. No, not Flash Hindsight. But you know what? Flash Foresight. <laughs> why? Because the reason Foresight is so powerful is you can't change your past, but you can change your future based on the actions you take today. So what I want to do is to help you remember the concept future view I shared with you. I want to elevate mm-hmm. your future view because remember how you view the future shapes, how you act, how you act shapes your future. Your future view will determine the future you. So if I can elevate your future view, the future you will be elevated and you'll be doing things today or tomorrow that you didn't even think you could do today because you were able to see it. And uh, getting that in your mind's eye is powerful. Uh, this is awesome. And for all of our listeners, uh, today was brought to you by making an indelible mark <laughs> on on your audience so that they never forget who you are, how generous you are, and how much from a service perspective you come to the game of marketing and 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 being out there, uh, you were you were an awesome example of that today, Daniel. And I know that's how you've always carried yourself, but uh, this is what we try to really focus on a lot around here, because and and people can tell a difference. We have people who are newer to this stuff who come on the show, and they they're getting there, they're figuring this stuff out. Uh, so I don't want to denigrate anybody who's ever been on the show before, but you can really tell a difference when you go through the archives. What's on somebody's mind when they come to this show? And we, of course, you all know us, we love the service-based model of, of, of business and marketing. And you've left a mark today, sir. <laughs> that that well, cannot be forgotten you. if anybody was really halfway listening. And uh, I thank you so much for that. Um, we are well, coming up well, to the top you. of the thank hour. You. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Uh, but we do have a little bit of time left. So, I wanted to see if we could play with this one more time and and do it from a perspective that I talked about early on in the show, where people in business are just constantly trying to feel like they're trying to keep up with stuff. So when Facebook came on the scene, and most importantly when they started doing ads, very few people gravitated toward that. The people who did were like, oh, my God, this is so much cheaper than AdWords. This is so great. We're going directly to people. We hadn't yet identified that people were on Facebook to play. And Google are, and people are in Google to solve problems, but you know we dealt with that as we went along. We learned, and it became something that seemed very complicated. And a lot of people would rightly argue now it's pretty complicated. Learning new technology, learning why all the people have left your site and they seem to, seem to spend so much time on Facebook. How do we how do we prevent? We're we're so deep in it that we have our daily activity that has to be surrounded by that if you're doing paid advertising and you're doing your social engagement and all that kind of stuff. Is it the hour that we take a week? Is that where we do our work to go, hey, Facebook and everything is impermanent. Nothing is permanent. No one should ever expect Facebook to be at least the way it is today for any time in the future. It's probably never going to make a flame out like MySpace did. It's almost too big to fail in that way. It is too big to fail, I think, in that way. But 
is it that hour that we spend? Is that what that hour is for? Is it insurance against us getting too comfortable with the way things are right now for our businesses, how we generate leads and how we operate? Um, or is and there anything else that we need to be aware of? Well, uh, there are a couple things you said in there I want to touch on. <clears throat> One is keeping up is difficult. And you said, you know, we're all trying to keep up. And frankly, keeping up is a fool's game. I mean, what's the advantage of keeping up? All you're doing is keeping up with somebody else. What I want you to do yeah. is to jump ahead with, with certainty, which means jumping ahead with low risk by taking that hour and looking at what's going to happen anyway. Secondly, um, you know, we're, before Google, who was the leader in online search? And the answer was Yahoo. Matter of fact, Yahoo yep. invented online search. And most people don't realize, but in 2001, Yahoo had over 700 million groups of people sharing in there. In other words, yeah. wow, they were almost getting close to a billion. But they squandered it because if you were in Yahoo at that time and you were in search, you were in the backwaters of Yahoo. They thought it was all about advertising. It wasn't about search. And a couple of guys uh, started Google and changed that. So now Google is really big. But is Google's future success a hard trend? And the answer is no. Somebody could come along and completely redefine that. As a matter of fact, if you do a Google search <clears throat> on a subject, you'll get possibly 100,000 responses. How far down do you go? Eight, ten? Yeah. In other words, the good thing may be 100 down, but you never get to it. Somebody's going to come out with a better way to do what Google does and upseat Google. Same thing could happen with Facebook. So most of us think they're so big that there's nothing we could do about it. And that's your limitation. You've got a limitation on yourself. So the reality is spend some time and, uh, and do this, uh, whatever this process I'm teaching you, and you'll find that you can do far more than you realize. And by the way, you could go to Burris, B-U-R-R-U-S dot com. I write a blog. Um, and, you know, I've got over a million readers of that. I'm sure you'd find it useful. Uh, LinkedIn, I've got over a million followers on LinkedIn, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter. I publish all kinds of good stuff on there that, frankly, is free. All you got to do is go to Daniel Burris and Twitter and Facebook, and you'll get all kinds of goodies. So now I'm giving you even more goodies that you can just have and <laughs> use. And uh, take advantage. Awesome. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Also, another goodie from earlier in the show is theaobook.com. You only have to pay for shipping to get a hard copy of, of Daniel's new book, and I'm going straight there as soon as we're done here. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. We really, really, really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank back you so you, much, Daniel. And, and we will be back same time, same place next week for another episode of Leverage Masters. Have a great week, everybody. Tune in next week for another episode of Leverage Masters. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook on our Leverage Blackbook page to keep up with the latest. We'll see you next time on Leverage Masters.